0: thank you greg it 's good to be here this morning. i uh, heard that there 's an audible being called. These chairs right here are supposed to stay up, so if you 're helping break down it 's only going to be these out outside. I heard it 's good to see you, John and Suzanne. I heard that when they came in the front door, there was spontaneous applause as we saw them and uh, I've got an echo back here, if you guys can help me out. Um, And as I heard that, which is pretty cool, I thought, I think heaven's going to be something like that. After a long and weary battle, and you enter home, Peter says, this abundant entrance will be provided for you into the kingdom of heaven. Just think about that. It'll be worth it. It will be worth it. So it's good to, to have you you both back with us and continue to pray for you. This morning, we're going to continue our study of the doctrines of grace. We're taking a break from what we normally do, which is to take a book of the Bible and just simply work through that. That is something we've been doing for almost 22 years, not completely 23 years, I was going to do something novel and new when we first started the church, and that didn't work out well. So we went to the old tried-and-true method of just working through a book of the Bible so that the Bible is allowed to speak for itself, and uh, we've been doing that. But we we occasionally will take breaks, and we're doing that, we're doing a series on the doctrines of grace. Uh, These are very important uh, doctrines. They are called the doctrines of grace because they display the majesty and the glory and the greatness of God's grace towards us specifically as it relates to our salvation. These are not, as some may assume, simply teachings of men, far from it. These are things that are found and taught clearly in the Bible and in many ways and oftentimes taught more explicitly by Jesus Christ himself more than anyone else. In fact, these doctrines are so important that it would be very difficult to read through the Gospels, per uh, per se, read through the Gospels, read the teachings of Jesus, and not know these doctrines. Some of the things that Jesus says would simply be incomprehensible. You wouldn't be able to understand what he was saying. And truthfully, that's what a lot of people do. If they don't understand the doctrines of grace, they will come across text in Scripture and, and they don't have a category for it. They don't understand what it means. This morning we're going to look at the L or the I in the acrostic tulip. Tulip stands. For the doctrines of grace, we've looked at total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement. This morning we're looking at the letter I, which is irresistible grace. If you have your Bibles, I hope you will turn to John chapter 6, because that's, we're going to focus our attention there on the teaching of Christ Himself. Now, when we hear the word irresistible grace... I am sure that some people hear that word irresistible and immediately there is this struggle with the word irresistible grace. It's a hard time maybe understanding the word irresistible and people often will respond negatively to this doctrine because of that word irresistible. Irresistible grace does not teach that God's grace is never resisted. It doesn't teach that at all. In fact, the grace of God is regularly, consistently, constantly being resisted. All throughout Scripture, Matthew 22, Jesus gives the parable of the kingdom, and He, he says it's like a, a wedding feast, and He sends out invitations Come, come. You're invited to the wedding feast. The wedding feast being our the banquet of our salvation. Come. They don't come. So then he sends back his messengers and he's like, "Hey, tell them that there's going to be, you know, it's not hot dogs. This is this is fine veal parmesan. This is going to be steak." They said they were too busy. They uh, were not interested. Somebody had to take care of his farm. They still didn't come. It was resisted. Here is the invitation. Come. The parable of the banquet, finally it says, uh, some of them went and seized his servants and uh, killed them. The ultimate resistance of grace. The the guys that are coming and telling him and inviting him to the banquet, they kill him. That's grace resisted. We see irresistible grace in Jesus' lament over Jerusalem in Matthew 23. You're probably familiar with that verse where Jesus cries out over Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. A stunning indictment upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the city's children. These are the ones that killed the messengers. Jesus said, how often, how often I would have gathered you together. How many times, again and again, I would have gathered you. You're probably not there, but it says, I would have gathered you. Literally, the word is thelo I wanted, I willed to gather you. Jesus wanted to gather them. That's what he wanted to do. I saw you. I wanted you to come, but you weren't willing. You wouldn't come. The question often arises in the doctrines of grace when we study things like election and limited atonement. Does God really desire the salvation of everyone? And the answer is yes, without question. It is clear in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He urges them, why won't you repent? Why not turn and live? 1 Timothy, God desires all men to be saved. It is clear God desires all to be saved. Why then? Why will people not be saved? Well, it goes back to our message on total depravity. The problem with man is their free will. They don't want to. That was the inhabitants of... They were unwilling. Literally, that text tells us Jesus wanted to gather them and they didn't want to. The problem of unregenerate humanity. We see irresistible grace in Stephen when he is being stoned as he declares to those Jewish leaders in Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened you always resist the Holy Spirit." as your fathers did, so do you. And we don't even need the Bible. We, in our own experience, we know of people who are resisting grace. A loved one, a spouse, children, neighbors, you're, you're setting before them the banquet of salvation, and they're just not interested. They're too busy. They reject it. They resist grace. So the doctrine of irresistible grace does not teach that God's grace is irresistible. So if the Bible clearly shows that grace is resisted, why do we teach irresistible grace? Well, the answer to that is it is because grace is resisted that we have to have irresistible grace. We have to have irresistible grace. Let me define for you irresistible grace It is the scriptural teaching that all those that God has chose for salvation will infallibly come to salvation. His grace cannot and will not ultimately fail in bringing the elect to salvation in Christ. That's irresistible grace. And no one has taught this more clearly, more explicitly than Jesus Christ Himself. If you're in the book of John, chapter 6, I'll draw your attention to verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I mean, this is one of those verses that if you don't have an understanding of these doctrines, you really have no idea what Jesus is talking about. All that the Father gives me. What does that mean? Who's that? Who who does the Father give to the Son? The answer is those that he has marked out for salvation. The elect, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. They will come to me, irresistible grace. What I want us to do this morning is we're going to see in this passage two distinct theological components that are involved in irresistible grace of God bringing to Christ those that He chose before the foundation of the world. He will infallibly bring them to Christ. Not one of them will fail to come to Christ. And there's two distinct doctrines that are involved specifically in the, in the doctrine of irresistible grace. So we're going to look at the first one. Irresistible grace involves the doctrine of predestination. Predestination. What does predestination mean? It means predetermined. It means a destiny determined beforehand predestined. That word predestination is a word that is so theologically infused with meaning that you can look at almost in any English dictionary, look up predestination, and it will almost always include the theological component. The Oxford Dictionary defines predestination as, quote, a doctrine in Christian theology, the divine foreordaining of all that will happen, especially with regard to the salvation of some and not others. Merriam-Webster, it is the act of predestinate, predestinating, the state of being predestined, the doctrine that God, in consequence of His foreknowledge of all events, infallibly guides those who are destined for salvation. You don't even need a theological dictionary to understand what predestination means. It's in our English dictionaries. God foreordained those that He chose to come to salvation. He's predetermined their destiny. Now, if you want to start a small riot in a church, start talking about predestination or if you want to keep everybody happy and keep everyone coming don't talk about predestination it's not a uh, well received doctrine the problem is however as controversial as it may be predestination is clearly taught in scripture i mean it's it's there Apart from simply just rejecting the Bible and saying, well, I just don't believe it. If you're a believer that's going to take your faith seriously, that's not an option. So you have to take the word predestination as the Bible spells it out, and you have to come to terms with it. You somehow have to make peace with it because it's taught in the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also... Predestined. Their destiny has been foreordained, predetermined, those who He foreknew. You have to do something with this. This isn't John Calvin. This isn't Augustine. This is the Scriptures. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined. One way that people deal with predestination is to take the word foreknowledge, those whom He foreknew, He predestined. And they interpret it to mean this, God knew beforehand what people would do, those who would choose Him and believe on Him, and those that He saw would believe on Him, He predestined them. I would imagine that most people in churches today would believe that concept. There's a little bit of a a problem with that kind of response. I I don't mean to be crass or crude or rude, but it's almost a joke to believe that. And here's why. Let's say I had the ability to see... Tomorrow night, that Texas Tech was in fact going to win the NCAA championship. I see it. I could see it all. I knew what every play was going to do, and I know what the final score is. And then I come to my family and I say, I predestine Texas Tech is going to win. That's a joke. I didn't predetermine anything. I simply prophesied a future event, but I certainly don't predestine that event. And yet that's what people want us to believe, that God looks and He sees what you're going to do, and He's like, oh, that's what you're going to do? Okay, I'll preordain that. That's a joke. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to be nasty. But I want to be honest with the Bible. That can't be what it's teaching. Because that makes God kind of a joke. And he's no joke. That means foreknowledge has to mean something than simply, I know what they're going to do. And if we go back to last week's sermon, we get a real good idea of what it means for God to know something. When Jesus said, I know my own, that's not simply he knows what we are about, he knows our existence. For Jesus to say he knows something, for God to know something, means something way beyond mere facts of existence or facts of actions. Jesus will declare on the last day to some people, Depart from me, I don't know you. What in the world does that mean? You mean Jesus doesn't know about them? He doesn't know their actions? He's not familiar with them? course it doesn't mean that when jesus says i know my own he is talking about entering into an intimate personal loving relationship with someone i know them like adam knew his wife eve This isn't just a mere acquaintance. This is a loving union. I know my own. And when the Bible says God foreknew us, it does not mean He knew what we would do because He knew exactly what we would do. He knew that we would be children of wrath just like everyone else, but God chose to set His love on us and to enter into a loving union union with us, and those who He foreknew, He ordained, preordained, the destiny of coming to Jesus Christ, foreknowledge. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus said again in verse 37. We'll see predestination in what Jesus said. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me. Foreknowledge. He knows there's a people that He knows, a people that He has chosen. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Predestination. The destiny of those the Father gives the Son has been predetermined. They will come. This is not a language of hope. I hope they will come. This is not a language of possibility. This is the language of decree. They will come. Ephesians 1 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He chose us, he set his love on us before the foundation of the world. He foreknew us and In choosing us, he predestined us to adoption as sons. That one will be my son, my daughter. You've been predestined to adoption. Verse 11 of Ephesians 1 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Far from His foreknowledge being determined on our will, predestination is based upon the one who works all things according to His will, His purposes. So predestination, what does it mean? This is an amazing doctrine. It means God orchestrated the events in your life in such a way that will infallibly bring you to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. God orchestrated all those events in your life to bring you to saving faith in Christ. He predestined that to happen. Every one of you, every believer, has a unique salvation story, and it just shows the personal love of God. Every path to salvation was personally tailored by God. There's no cookie-cutter salvations. God was actively working in your life because he knew your name, you were his own, and he was orchestrating events that would bring you to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You talk about spine tingling. We need to think, and sometimes I get frustrated because I just think Christians just don't think, we have to ask ourselves questions. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. Every Christian needs to ask themselves, why are you a Christian? You need to ask yourself that. I mean, okay, why? Why am I a Christian? For some of you, it's because a parent led you to Christ or a teacher or a brother or a friend. Some of you turned on the radio and you heard this crazy message and and you believed it. But why? Why did you become a Christian? So I asked that question, and it bothered me. I'm like, why am I a Christian? And other people aren't. And my first response was, I am a Christian because my parents are Christian, and my dad's a pastor. That is why I'm a Christian. And that answer really bothered me, because that's an unfair advantage I know a lot of people, even today, that say, man, I wished I would have grown up in a Christian home. You should have seen the home I grew up in, godless. You grew up with Christian parents that loved you, a dad that was a pastor that taught you. Of course that's why you're a Christian. And we need to grapple with this because I'm telling you, critics are out. Some of you are familiar with Richard Dawkins. I mean, this is a bad dude. He hates Christianity. He hates God. He hates religion. And he has publicly described a very unique phenomenon in the world as he tries to discount any knowledge of God, any truth about God, any religion. He says there is a curious phenomenon in this world. Muslims have Muslim parents. Buddhists had Buddhist parents. Catholics had Catholic parents. Christians had Christian parents. His whole point is, there is no true religion. You're simply born into the religion that you're raised in. That's what you think is true. Wow. If we were to look at the circumstantial evidence, he'd be absolutely right. When you look at religion, people are born into their religion But when you look at the Bible, the biblical evidence is quite different for true religion. It's not because you're born into a certain family, it's predestination. It's predestination. I was given an unfair advantage, but that wasn't by chance. I didn't choose it. Isn't that amazing? I didn't get to choose, well, you know what, I would have a lot better chance of becoming a Christian in that family. Nope. Kids don't get a chance to choose their parents, and parents don't get to choose their kids either, usually. Well, who put me in? God did. My unfair advantage was predetermined by God. My wife is adopted. Her birth mother came from the West Coast, stopped in St. Joseph, had her, and left. She was adopted into a Christian family. Her half brothers and sisters didn't get that privilege. That's an unfair advantage. How did she get to be born in a Christian from raised in a Christian family and her siblings didn't predestination God orchestrates the events of our life to bring us infallibly to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ whether it's a friend a coworker the radio There are no accidents. I believe every advantage or innocuous action that led you or someone to Christ has been predestined. It's been orchestrated by God. That's what predestination means. And you have to ask yourself, why am I a Christian? This unfair advantage. Yeah, it is an unfair. God orchestrated in your life so that you would hear and respond to the gospel. Here's another thing we have to think about. And this is heavy stuff. I realized that a lot of times people go to church and they don't really expect to be challenged in their thinking. They just kind of expect to hear something fuzzy and nice and go home and go about their day. But let's be honest, if you're you're just going to open the Bible and you're going to take it seriously, it's going to challenge our thinking. The world, the life we're living is challenging. There are serious issues out there that we have to think about instead of just burying our heads in the sand. And there is another issue that we have to come to, grips with. It is a reality in the world. And not very many Christians think about it. I don't hear it talked about a lot. And what is that reality? That there are many people in this world who have passed away, who are passing away, who will pass away, who have never heard the gospel. That's not a comfortable truth. It is a reality. There are people that will pass away, that have never heard the gospel. I had a dear friend, have a dear friend, Ab, many of you know him. He was a Muslim. He was born into a Muslim family, raised in Islam. But when he was a young boy, there was a missionary lady in his village that basically did just little VBS studies out of her home and a few kids would come to that in the village in the little city there he came because she would give candy and he kept going back for the candy but he kept hearing the message and finally about the age of 16 i believe he responded to christ and came to christ now what's amazing about that story His village, his city, had a missionary. I could take you to hundreds of Muslim villages. There is zero missionaries, zero gospel witness. Why did he live in a village that had a missionary that was there, that just wanted to share the gospel with, with children That's an unfair advantage. And why did he come to that? I mean, there were a lot of kids in that village. They didn't come. It wasn't like the whole city was flocking to him. There was just a handful of them that would come. Why would he be the one to come? And and what about all the places that don't have any missionaries whatsoever? There are around 17,000 people groups in the world. That's about 7.5 billion people right now. 17,000 people groups unique languages unique cultures 17,000 of those 17,000 7,000 people groups are considered unreached means there, there's no like the gospel believers are 2% or less of the population that represents about 3 billion people 3 billion people have Virtually no gospel witness. They don't know any Christians. Their parents aren't Christians. Their friends aren't Christians. They don't go to work with Christians. They don't turn on the radio to hear Christian TV or or radio music. Of those 7,000 people groups that are unreached, there's another, there's 3,000 that are called unengaged, unreached people groups. That means not only are they unreached, but there is no known strategy to reach them. There's nobody thinking about going there. There's no missionaries going there. 3,000 people groups, and we have no one going to them to tell them the gospel. They can't find the gospel. They don't know the gospel. This is a reality that we have to grapple with. Even if we were to reach all those 3,000 people groups tomorrow, maybe tomorrow we could reach them. Even if we were to reach them tomorrow, there would be generations that have passed away that never heard the gospel. At our missions conference, I showed that video, e Tau 2, the next chapter. It's a gripping story. You got to see it if you haven't seen it, but It's the second story, because the missionaries go into the first village and share the gospel, and virtually the the whole village responds savingly. So they're there, and another village comes, and they come to the village that got saved, and they said, we see light in your eyes. We want the light in our eyes. We want a missionary to come to our village. And the missionary said, no, I'm not going. You guys go. And they're like, whoa, well, he trains them, and so they go. This village goes to this village, and they share the gospel with them, and the same thing happens. Virtually the entire village comes to Christ, and they're erupting in joy, dancing around, singing, praising God for the salvation. Their sins are forgiven. And then, as this documentary, it's real footage is going on, all of a sudden, they stop their rejoicing and abruptly begin weeping. And I'm not just talking about crying, I mean snot and everything, weeping. You know why they were weeping? Because all the people that died in their village before the missionary came. They were grappling with that reality. This is real. This is happening in the world today, and I'm going to ask you, what theological system do you have to understand this, to explain it, to live with it? This is a reality. You really come to one of two conclusions. One God is incredibly frustrated with us, and He is miserably impotent on His own. And people are going to hell, and there is nothing He can do about it. And sadly, many people have simply resolved that's just the case. The only other way you can understand this is God is absolutely sovereign in the bestowal of his mercy. And in his sovereign bestowal, there are those that he has simply passed over. He has let them do what they want to do. The Bible says they are without excuse. Because creation itself demonstrates who God is, but they suppress the truth and instead worship creation. And they build wooden statues and worship them and say, that's God. And he passes over them. He lets them go their own way. Now you choose. You either choose a frustrated, impotent God who who cannot save everybody that he wants to save. Or you choose a sovereign God who is Sovereign in his bestowal of mercy. And I will tell you this, the Bible that I read and the God that I worship is not impotent and he is not frustrated. He is a sovereign Lord over all. Predestined. God sovereignly orchestrated your life to bring you to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we're not done. Notice what Jesus said. All that the Father gives will come. Well, how are they going to come? My goodness, I realize I have way too much material here. How are they going to come? Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you understand? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There are people that don't come. Why don't they come? Their Father's not drawing them. The ones that do come, they only come because the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus Christ clearly taught total depravity. No one can come to me. The word can is dunamai, capacity, ability, power. No one has the capacity, the ability, the power to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In God's predestined plan, we will come to Christ because the Father draws us to Christ. Now, this is interesting because the indictment upon human race in Romans chapter 3 is there is no one who seeks after God. No one does. And you might say, well, I sought God. Why did you seek God? I will tell you why. No, Jesus will tell you why. He drew you. He is drawing you. That's why you seek after God. The word draw is a fascinating word in Greek. It's helko, and it has kind of a double meaning. It can mean to woo, as in to speak tenderly and kindly to. It can also mean simply drag. Like it's used to be drug into court, like you don't want to go to court, but you're going to court kind of a deal. So it's woo or it's drag, and I think that's entirely appropriate because some of you, God wooed. He simply spoke the kind words of the gospel, and you were all over that. Others of you, he drug. You were running from him as fast as you possibly could, but he was not about to let you outrun him. He chased you down, and he kept pursuing you you. C.S. Lewis says it's like he's the hound of heaven. He just is on my trail and he won't let me go. Draw or drag, you will come to Christ. I love what Romans 10 20 says. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, here's the Lord speaking, I have been found by those who didn't seek me. The irony of ironies, it's clearly a divine irony. I have been found by those who didn't even seek me because I sought them. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Look at that, Romans 10, 20. Ask yourself, how do you understand that? But divine sovereignty. Sovereignty. So how does the Father draw us? This is really important because it builds on itself. We will not come, and we will not come unless we're drawn. How is it the Father draws us? He calls us. He calls us. He calls us through the gospel. That goes back to our Text from last week, John 10, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. We are the ones God has called out. He's called us out with the gospel. We heard the gospel message. We believed it, so we're called the called out ones. Romans 1, 6. You who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Romans eight thirty: And those whom He predestined, He also called Tim, Bill, come. So where does this call come from? How does God call us? He calls us through the gospel. And here's the most fascinating thing of all. We are called through the proclamation of the gospel that goes out into the whole world. Broadly, indiscriminately. And we hear that gospel message, and through that gospel proclamation, we, that's true. I believe that. And we follow Him. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. listen to what Jesus said. Many are called, but few are chosen. What in the world would that mean? If you don't understand the doctrines of grace, what in the world would it mean for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to say, many are called, but few are chosen? It's clearly an indication of these doctrines where this call goes out and people are called indiscriminately. Many are called, but of those many, there are those that God chooses and says, you will be mine, irresistibly drawn to faith in Jesus Christ. This is why it's so important that we preach the gospel to all people. Because it's in that gospel proclamation to all people that God effectually calls his people to himself. I don't go around and looking for ease on anybody. I just preach the gospel. I tell them what Jesus has done for us, dying on the cross for our sins. He was raised on the third day. Believe him. And those that believe, God has called to himself. Now that raises a very important question. We preach the gospel, we preach it. And the Bible says in the indictment against humanity that no one understands. So why did we understand? If Romans says, Romans three eleven no one understands, no one seeks after God, why did we understand the gospel? How did you hear the gospel and believe the gospel if you couldn't understand it? Or you got... A passage like 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Well, we were once perishing. Why wasn't the gospel folly to us? Why were we like 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The nat- we were once natural. The natural person doesn't accept the things of God, For he can't understand them, because you have to have the Spirit to understand them. So we're drawn by being called, but we have to respond to the call. But in order to respond to the call, we have to be able to understand, but in our natural state, we can't understand. So why did we understand? The doctrine of irresistible grace not only involves the doctrine of predestination, but it involves one other very important doctrine. It involves the doctrine of regeneration regeneration. Every believer knows what Jesus taught in John 3. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. When Jesus says to see the kingdom of God, he's obviously not talking about physical eyes, like you'd be born again and then you go, oh, there it is, I see it. He's talking about being able to mentally apprehend it to understand it, to see and behold. Jesus said, you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. And of course, that upset Nicodemus. He's like, how can I be born again? And Jesus said, well, it's the Spirit. It's like the wind. You can't command the wind. It's the work of the Spirit. In order for us to be saved, we have to believe How can we believe what we don't understand, we can't see? Well, we have to be born again. Well, how do you be born again? It's really important. The Bible tells us some clues how we're born again. Romans 1.16 tells us the gospel is the power of God to salvation, like there is in the gospel itself the power of God to save people. 1 Peter 1, verse 23, since you have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God... You're born again through the living, life-giving power of God's Word, the gospel. That's how you're born again. But how can you be born again if you can't understand it? Well, let's see what Jesus says in John 6, verse 45. This is all part of the regenerating process. In order for us to understand the gospel, the gospel has to be taught to us by God. John 6 verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. A person believes the gospel when they've been taught by God, when we hear and learn from the Father and understand and come to him. How would you ever convince, thinking of our missionaries in Muslim countries, How would you ever convince a Muslim that Jesus is the Son of God? When everything in their world, everything in their religion, everything in their literature said Jesus is not the Son of God, how would you convince a Muslim that Jesus died on the cross when they are taught from birth that the prophet Jesus would never die on the cross, Allah would never allow that, and here you come and say, no, listen, Jesus died on the cross. What would possibly convince them to believe that? God can convince them. If God teaches them, they would reject everything they've ever been taught and say, that's true. But it's not just People in other cultures, it's not just Muslims. This is for everyone because we are all dead in our trespasses and sins and can't understand. So it requires that God teach us. If you have come to Christ and you believe the gospel, it is because not your mother taught you, not your friend, God himself taught you. That's an amazing thing that you embraced this and understood it because God himself taught you. The gospel has to be revealed to us by God. It's all part of regenerating process. You remember the story of Peter. And Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, Who do men say that I am? And, oh, you're this prophet, you're that prophet. And then he looks to Peter and he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, way to go. Way to pay attention. you have learned a lot. No, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. But my Father in heaven has revealed that to you. That's just not true about Peter. That's true about us as well. Unless the Father reveals Himself to us and shows us, you're not going to embrace the gospel. If you've embraced the gospel, God has revealed Him to you. This is an incredible thing, folks. The gospel goes out, the invitation goes out to many people. Some reject it, scorn it. They're not interested in it. Grace is resisted, but resisted grace requires irresistible grace. God chose some, and He does a work in their hearts. They hear, they understand, they will come, they believe. I want us to close simply by just some implications of this of this doctrine, irresistible grace. It is such, it's one of my favorite doctrines. I've, I, one time somebody told me, eh, my least favorite is irresistible grace, and I about had a heart attack, like, whoa, what are you talking about? This is the most precious doctrine. For one, it's one that I have experienced. I mean, this is real world, like unconditional election. I just have to take that by faith that God did that. I wasn't there. I have to take Particular redemption by faith. I I wasn't there when Jesus Christ died on the cross. I don't know that for sure. I believe it. But irresistible grace I've experienced. This is real. Irresistible grace. This is why we have to preach the gospel in its purity and its simplicity. This is why it is so important that we preach the gospel clearly and passionately and simply because it's the gospel that God uses to save his people. That's what they hear. That's why, if there's one place in the world that somebody should hear the gospel, it should be in church that they hear the gospel. Today we've been embroiled in this whole attractional model of ministry where churches are doing everything they can possibly can to attract people to their church, to attract the world into their church. And I mean, it's crazy the things that they're doing to get people to come as if it's difficult to attract people. You could do all kinds of things to attract people. But I want to say I'm all for the attractional model. What we're supposed to attract is Sheep. And the way you attract sheep is by preaching the truth, preaching the gospel. Because sheep's ears perk up when they hear the gospel. They respond to the gospel. I am convinced, I want you to just think about this, I'm convinced that many churches that are trying to attract the world are actually repelling sheep. I mean, just let that sit with you for a minute, and it's like a big backfire. We're, we're busy trying to attract the world, and we're doing all these gimmicks, and sheep are going, eh, not interested, and they're leaving. And you know, Jesus himself said that in John chapter 10. He said in John chapter 10, verse 4, When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. and sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. But they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. I I read about this church that's going all out for Easter. 150,000 Easter eggs for the biggest Easter egg hunt in the world, maybe. Metal-bending muscle men, a car show. I mean, they're going to have it all, baby. People are going to flock to this place. But sheep are going to smell that and say, there's just something not right about this. This isn't the voice of the shepherd. The voice of the shepherd is found in the gospel of a crucified and resurrected Christ. That's true. I believe that. Irresistible grace is why we preach the purity of the gospel. Irresistible grace is the treasure that we have as an evangelist, as a minister of reconciliation. That's what 2 Corinthians 4-7 is all about. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I am so thankful that a person's salvation does not rest upon me, upon my eloquence, upon my ability to persuade somebody. The treasure is, that's God's work, irresistible grace. That's God's power. He draws. I like to tell the story, and I'm not going to go into it. You can talk to Steve Hardigan. but the worst sermon I ever preached, God used to bring somebody to Christ. You talk about humbling, because the power isn't of me. It's of God. Irresistible grace is why we pray for lost people. I assume it's a very common thing for Christians to pray for the salvation of lost people, for their children, for spouses, for co-workers. But listen, if God simply makes salvation possible for people and He leaves it up to them to decide, why in the world would you pray? What has God got to do with that? If we believe that God is going to be equal in His conviction and equal in His revealing power, why in the world would I ask God to save my children? If it's up to them, I better be busy persuading them. Leave God out of it. He's already done His work. The truth is most people inherently believe irresistible grace, even though they don't want to admit it. That's why they pray for lost people. Because God has the power to draw. And I, I, I get so frustrated with people who see the doctrines of grace as impotence, as, as hindrances to people to coming to Christ. The doctrines of grace don't keep people from coming to Christ. They are the only thing that brings people to Christ. Irresistible grace is the only thing that separates me and you from the vilest sinner condemned to eternal damnation, because God chose to draw us. God chose to reveal Himself and teach us the truth and save us. Irresistible grace is why we have the assurance of salvation. If He brought us to Christ, you can be sure we're predestined not just to come to Christ, but as we'll see next time, to be with Christ to be glorified with him. Irresistible grace is why we sing songs like Amazing Grace. This is amazing. This is amazing grace. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to close in prayer. But I was thinking there are some of you that are here today and you know God has been chasing you. You're here this morning and it is not by accident You are here because God has been working in your life. He has been convicting you. He's been chasing you down, and He is after you, and you know it. And it is not an accident that you would be here this morning to hear a gospel that will reconcile you to God. That God, in love, sent His Son, and His Son bore the penalty of our sin. All your wretched sin, Jesus Christ, he paid the penalty of sin. He was crucified. He was buried. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And here's the pardon. Here's the promise. Everyone that will look to Jesus Christ, everyone that will believe on him will be saved. And there are some of you this morning that you know exactly what you need to do. You need to believe on Jesus Christ. You know you need to surrender to him. You know you need to believe on him. And I urge you to do it. Don't leave this place without doing it today. Father, thank you for this grace, this marvelous grace. I pray, Father, that our hearts would respond in worship to a God who exalts himself in our salvation. Let those who love your salvation say, let the Lord be magnified. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.